0: And uh, so I'm going to ask uh, Dennis if he wants to say hello, and then we'll get to it today.
1: Thank you, Van, and welcome to our show today. We have a special guest. So we're glad to have you on with us. So those of you who are joining <laughs> us live on Facebook, uh, we welcome you to our show. Those of you who will be looking at us later on YouTube or on Kingdom Governors, thank you for being with us on the show and mm-hmm. then on our podcast on anchor.fm mm-hmm. forward slash Talk straight. We'll be listening to our podcast. So we're excited about our special guest today, and then our panel, our regular panel, who's on with us. Thank all of them being in. I'm going to turn it back over to Van so he can introduce uh, the panel and our
0: guests. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Joel, I'm going to introduce you by reading an opening. You know, you know, we all have done thesis or dissertations, so we know that there's always a central thesis to whatever we write. And I'm going to just read a quick thought from your book and then let you just take the show from there, elaborate whichever way that you may choose, but I'm going to read this because the audience needs to know, uh, they need to know your writing and who you are, and I'm glad for the whole panel being with us today, but from your book, the introduction, it it starts out by saying, America's Unholy Ghost is a book about the frightening power of ideas and unlearn the way brilliant philosophers ingrain racist instincts into uh, Americans religious and political life. This book is also about Martin Luther King Jr.'s fight to uproot racism and inequality from the American experiment by writing the conscious of the prophetic black church onto American hearts and minds and laws of the land. Unholy Ghosts, uh, comes to e- close to exploring what America across racial and religious divides can learn from the prophetic Black church ongoing struggle to continue King's mission to end Americans, America's addiction to racism and inequality, evils lurking within our body politic from its very beginning. So, Joel, uh, I welcome you to the program, and I hope you begin by Telling us your whole sits in Lebanon, your situation in life. You're married, you have children, you're where you're living before you get into the other things. But give us some context for yourself today.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, first of all, let me just say how honored I am to be with uh, you, um, Dr. Gayton, and the whole panel. Um, I'm a little bit intimidated because I guess I'm the only one who hasn't done a uh, dissertation. But my name is Joel Goza, and I am a writer uh, who works from Houston's Fifth Ward. Um, and I live here with my my family. You know, der- during COVID, I have been locked in uh, to the house for a year with, I guess, my three best friends: my wife, my son Roger, who is four years old, uh, who y'all got to see a picture of. Uh, he's my background sometimes in Zoom, and he's fierce. Uh, and my daughter Naomi. And um, You know, I I say that, you know, I never had uh, a PhD from a regular institution, but I feel like in many ways, my experiences here in Fifth Ward were were my PhD, and um, I guess it was probably about 14, 15 years ago now um, that an African-American church took me under its wing and really showed me the ropes in the community, and I wrote America's Unholy Ghost really... Um, in an attempt to understand what it was that developed the racial crisis in our nation. Um, So when I came into Houston's Fifth Ward, my worldview, like the vast majority of white America, was really defined by racial mythologies that, when I got to Fifth Ward, could not explain what I was seeing on a daily basis. And so... In America's Unholy Ghost, uh, what I write about is that Dr. King encouraged us to begin studying the roots of ideational race hate, and so uh, that was kind of the spur that got me that got me started. Um, and I'm so honored to, to be with y'all today, for sure.
0: Yes, and Joel, what all, you also mentioned that you deal with the uh, philosophical input from the Enlightenment, right, from Europe. France uh, England etc and King you you talk about King Mm uh inciting you to look at that so so what Mm -hmm. did King say about Mm -hmm. these roots what did he how did he mention them how 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 did that touch you well you know
2: maybe I'll, I'll I'll begin and say what I thought of King
0: okay you know so what
2: I thought of King was really shaped by Ronald Reagan uh the MLK day uh that that kind of framed King as kind of this motivational speaker, you know, a uh, leader for civil rights who had a good heart, um, kind of this cherished icon that brought about a colorblind society. You know, so this is what I thought, thought of King. And I only began reading King after I moved into the inner city. And when I started reading King after these experiences, what I realized was that I had received a king that was misframed. Um, And when I began reading King again, he provided such a different worldview that what I began, how I began to read King was not simply as a civil rights icon, but as a revolutionary genius. And so, I mean, King is an Einstein. He is a Galileo. He is a Copernicus. Mm. He's this type of genius that demands we receive the world through his eyes. And what became clear in reading King was that it was a worldview fundamentally at odds with the worldview that that shaped me, but not only myself as an individual, but American society.
0: Hmm. And
2: so if we want to start thinking about the worldview that shapes America, that worldview is crafted not in America, but actually largely in Europe during the time of the Enlightenment. And, you know, so when I, I studied uh, just a little bit of the Enlightenment in your kind of 101 on one courses um, in, in undergrad, uh, you know, I learned to think of the Enlightenment is this time that brought democracy to the world, that unleashed scientific progress, that heralded human equality. And yet, uh, whenever we studied the Enlightenment in undergrad, we didn't talk about the irony that it was really during the Enlightenment that not only these ideas of human equality and democracy arise, but the very work of slavery and racecraft Arises simultaneously, mm. and so you know when uh, when I moved into the fifth ward, I was actually doing financial analysis and attending a white megachurch, and so it was conservative evangelical Christianity that had been uh, very influential on me, uh, as well as free market economics. And so when I started to think about how I think, maybe not to be too confusing, but when I started to think about how I think, you know, mm-hmm. I, I kind of think in, in in sound bites, right? And I came across this quote um, from Thomas Hobbes, and what that quote said was that the value and the worth of a man, as of anything, is his economic price. Mm. Who determines that price? The buyer. And that's the only sentence that I read, um, but I knew right then that what I was what I was hearing within that sentence was the very logics of capitalism, but not only capitalism, the very logics of slavery. Mm. And when that thing started reversing on me, you began to see how, in very serious ways, that slavery became the paradigm for economic thinking. Mm. Uh, when we think about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that one quote comes from somebody else named John Locke, who wrote originally about life, liberty, and property. Mm-hmm. And so I started studying Locke. Uh, and of course, I, being, being an economics major, I knew of this invisible hand uh, metaphor that was developed by Adam Smith. And so what Adam Smith would say is that, you know, when we go out and we share our wonderful dinner together, the restaurant we eat at doesn't care about our fellowship. What they want is their nipple, right? And they pursue their own self-interest. And by them pursuing their own self-interest, they create this good that was no part of their design, but that made a more beautiful society. And so he, what Adam Smith did, this really famous alliteration that talked about it is from the brewer the baker and the butcher that we receive our dinner from them pursuing their own self-interest and they are guided by an invisible hand Mm -hmm. and so when i started having to deal with the conflict of what i believed about poverty and race in america and what i began witnessing in the inner city these very surface level ideas were very formative for me and i wanted to understand where they came but what i I tried to read them somewhat in reverse by beginning to really focus on the work that they were designed to do on black bodies, and then understanding how they designed their system around those. And so Mm. that's just a little bit of of, of the journey uh, in, in writing the book. And so I know that you know when you read when you hear the names of Hobbes, Locke, and Adam Smith, you know it. It sounds kind of like a hoardy-torty book. You know, there, there aren't a whole lot of big words <laughs> in the book because these readers really, or these writers really did want to be understood. Um, but the ideas that they crafted were crafted for the common person, you know, and they were yeah. crafted to, to fundamentally shape society, but shape society in a way where the powerful became more powerful
0: and those without power became even more dispossessed. Mm. So, Dr. King, <clears throat> As you stated, had to be a brilliant man himself. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. that he he was so far ahead of us in this nation because mm-hmm. he looked mm-hmm. back into the Age of Enlightenment, which mm-hmm. I think maybe you should spend a little a, a, a quick yeah. moment on explaining yeah. Yeah. what that's all about uh, right. for our audience in particular. Right. Yeah. Uh, that he looked back at that and and yeah. was way ahead of the nation, looking back to the roots there, as it says, sure. you know, John the sure. Baptist laid yeah. axe to the root. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King laid axe to the root. He went right after them.
2: Right. And, you know, I think one of the things that would have to be said, be said is that, you know, I, I am not familiar with how much King un- really read the Thomas Hobbes, the John Locke, mm-hmm. the this, that, or the other. I mean, King's dream was to be a professor and to do that type of work. Yet what ends up happening with King is it's not an individualized brilliance. It is a brilliance deeply rooted within a tradition. Mm-hmm. And so if you ask yourself, what is the only institution not to be thoroughly, thoroughly formed by white supremacy, the only institution where that is the case is the prophetic black church mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that took white Christianity that was an appropriated form of Christianity and, and released it of white supremacy. And so the very worldview that King had was from the beginning very opposites of the type of worldview that shaped me in the church that I was a part of. Right. Mm. And so that is what made the, the personal brilliance he had so explosive is that he could take from a different tradition and communicate it across the swath of America in, in a very, very profound way and begin unlocking At least for a brief moment in our history, uh, a greater potential for an interracial democracy. Um, Mm. And so, you know, you know, one of the things we'll talk about is that you know King only believed his work was just beginning. Mm -hmm. And so, when he is getting towards the end of his ministry, it is clear in King that America has rejected him. America Mm. just rejected everything he was about. Um, And yet, even while they were rejecting him. They couldn't keep him from changing our nation in very fundamental ways.
0: Mm, mm. Um, now, <clears throat> we also recognize that in in your book, uh, by the way, uh, to our listening audience, viewing audience, um, Joel uh, graduated from Wheaton College, I believe. I did his yeah. undergrad, and he went to Duke Divinity School. Yeah. And uh, Dennis and I have run around the campus at Duke. Uh, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> we physically ran around and ate lunch in the cafeteria. Yeah, so we yeah. held the ground to being there, yep, and we yep. enjoyed ourselves so much. But you know, I was um, able to
2: graduate Duke without ever having run. So uh,
3: <laughs> that, run. I did a lot
2: of sitting at Duke, not a lot of running. Yeah. So
0: Joel, you have this. You, you have this yeah. uh, area where you deal with uh, different. Uh, forms of trinity mm-hmm. the oxford mm-hmm. boys that uh right. hobb and and smith and lock yeah, were yeah. from but mm-hmm. you also uh you you bring out in your trailer that you had uh three lies in the that were told mm-hmm. uh about about politics yeah. but there are three lies also spoken of about religion could you elaborate uh-huh. a little bit on that right about the politics or the religion either
2: one Okay. And well <laughs> what I you know what I wanted to do you know with with America's Unholy Ghost is really talk about the paradigms that shape about that shape how we think about the very fundamental natures of government, the very fundamental nature of economics, the very fundamental nature of justice and the very fundamental nature of religion. And what had to happen was these paradigms had to go through a revolution in order to harmonize with the enslavement of human beings. And so we had to start thinking differently about what we thought politics meant. And so the first lie uh, that I talk about that was necessary was to begin thinking that government is not about promoting the common good of the people, but about protecting property. This was one of the original lies that becomes very influential in the American Revolution. Why do we go to war? Represi- uh, taxation without representation. They're attacking our property. If and then, once government is no longer about protecting poor people, about promoting the well-being of society, there is an economic system that developed, and what happens within economics. Well, we begin learning to think of economics as this moral free math. And so when I went to uh, class in economics, did I study how much families have to have to survive in today's economy to be able to to feed a family of four? It's not what I studied. Did I I study how to protect the uh, most poor and vulnerable in the institutions that I would lead? That was not what I studied what I received in economics classes were grids and graphs. And what we began pr- pretending was that economics was just this moral free math. Um, and then once no longer the economy provides for people, no longer the government provides for people, the question becomes is how do you hold this whole thing together? And that's where we got this notion of justice. But justice is, be, gets to be reduced to just enforcing the status quo. Justice becomes retributive rather than restorative. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, when you have a society that is broken, your courts and your police start doing what's necessary. What's that? Enforcing the status quo. Um, and so this becomes the political imagination that becomes very formative in America, very formative in the Western world. But then the question became, how can you sell this type of idea of government, economics, and justice that runs counter to the Christian heritage? Um, well, you had to start transforming what we think of as religion. And basically what ends up happening in religion, and I talk about three, three lies within religion, is that no longer in this age of knowledge is religion primarily about relationships, What is religion about? It is about having the right formulas, about having the right theology in place. And we begin believing that we can know God without knowing each other, and particularly without knowing the poor and the vulnerable. And so one of the things that becomes a hallmarker of white Christianity, whether it's liberal in nature, conservative nature, or somewhere in the middle, is that white folks believe. That they can know God without ever needing to know black people, Mm. which is and, and there's a deep irony in that right so if God is father, and you believe that you can know a God whose identity is father without knowing his children, you know that's hugely problematic. And and it's that type of arrogance that thinks that marks all of white thinking, even secular thinking. So we don't learn politics from MLK, right? We don't learn economics from Cornell West. We don't learn, you know, I mean, white people think that they can know all the answers to the world's problems without knowing black people. So that that's a very fundamental reality. And yet what happens is that that as the evolution of these ideas go further is that religion becomes reduced to soul salvation. And so we know before we've ever read the Bible what religion is all about. They had to teach us what religion was about, and I show in my book how they do that, how they teach us what Christianity is about and reinterpret all of Scripture through their interpretation. So you know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, is more important than Matthew 25, for instance, where where Jesus says that if you want to know me, you've got to know the poor, the broken the orphan, the imprisoned, the immigrant. Um, so we already have kind of like this hierarchy in place. <laughs> Religion is about soul salvation. And then the final lie that I write about that, that became very central, central to slave Christianity is that inju- indifference to injustice is no threat to one's intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. And so you can be at the auction block, right? And you can hear the wells of this mother as her children get taken away. And feel like you don't have to do anything and you're still right with God, right? Um, and I say the auction block, but that is still happening today, right? We don't have to hear the cries of uh, the widows and the orphans, for instance, at the border or within our own city. Do you think that our relationship with God is what it needs to be, and by having this right relationship with God, it becomes this other Median uh, for the work of white supremacy um, in very powerful ways, and you know, as you read the book, you know, um, it's clear to me that white supremacy is not a secular or a sacred thing. You know, the you know, I'll try to write very clearly that when you see white supremacy, you don't only see uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. You also see Bill Maher. You know, and these are just two different sides of the same coin.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: um so i don't want it to come across as that <laughs> i'm i'm I, i'm uh just attacking christians the so christians right. become the
0: epitome of the wider project of poison and poison. uh i'm gonna let the others jump in here but i got one more thought for you too is that is this the reason you're thinking about the that third lie told about, to the church mm-hmm. uh is this why people could be in in the, in the south in the early days they could actually be in service praising god and then leave out and perform yeah. a lynching right after service right. and Absolutely. hang a black man or a woman from the tree yeah. just after they came from church praising God. Right.
2: Right. I mean that that I mean one of the tragic aspects of white Christianity is it convinced us that we knew God much better than what we really do. Mm. You know, and so we lost the humility somewhere along the way of what it means to be human, you know, mm-hmm. to not have all the answers, to not need all the answers, uh, but to be people who are thoroughly, thoroughly committed to the golden rule mm-hmm. and then work out our theology after that of how, great, of how great.
0: well anybody can jump in
3: now. I'd love to, if I may. Yes, go oh. ahead. Hey, Rob, oh, it's I'm good here. You. Joel, so good to see you. And thanks for spending this time with us this morning, Van. Thank you for inviting Joel. I think this is one of the most important and timely messages. The church, read that, the white church, particularly conservative evangelical church, needs to hear in our time. So thanks to you and Van for bringing that to our attention. A couple of books I keep right at hand here in my study. (laughs) Right over my shoulder, yeah, I you is it. yours, oh, of course, wow. which I consult regularly. <laughs> Thank you for that masterful work. It is a dissertation, and I'm so I'm so glad that you did your dissertation, not in the ivy uh, coated walls of Duke, but in the Fifth Ward. <laughs> That's where you did your research and your writing, and boy, does it ever show in this very powerful book. I... I I reference it regularly. But the other one is a work I think you just made an excellent case for, and that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Sanctorum Communio, uh, because he he argues we cannot know Christ Mm -hmm. apart from community, apart from relationship. We cannot know God, period. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. So that includes, of course... The whole of humanity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people of color, and I've made the point on this mm-hmm. uh, in, in this setting more than once. Uh, it's about time for white folk like me to confess that we serve a Lord of color, a man of color. Mm-hmm. Jesus was not yeah. a white complected guy like you and me, right? So all that, mm-hmm. but if if I may uh, boldly take you to another author
1: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, that I read years ago, um, I think you pronounce his name, Wiencheck, Henry Wiencheck, who wrote okay. An Imperfect God, George Washington, His Slaves, and the Creation of America. Mm-hmm. It was a, a life changer for me. Mm. And I wonder if you would comment a little because what I what I walked away from in reading Weencheck, oh, and by the way, am I permitted just a little more time for a sidebar here? Uh, you know, I served as a minister to elected and appointed officials in Washington for uh, 25 years and had the joy of knowing Jim Hudson, one of the premier American historians at the Library of Congress. And I'm down in the... Bowels of the Library of Congress with Jim one day and he says uh, come on over here uh, put your hand out I did he opened a drawer laid a very old vellum booklet in my hand and he said take a look at that and I opened it up it was George Washington's personal pocket diary that he kept mm. in his coat Wow when yeah. he would ride around Mount Vernon yeah. plantation mm-hmm. Uh slavery estate Mm -hmm. and make notes, including on his slaves. Mm -hmm. And in the entry I read, he was distributing his annual uh, uh, clothing allotment Mm -hmm. to each of his slaves once a year. Mm -hmm. They got new garments. And that's that's all they had to wear for the entire year. Work, sleep, play, everything. Mm -hmm. So, but what I what I want, what I went away from Wiencheck, uh understanding was that for Washington, while he saw his slaveholding as immoral, mm-hmm. he justified it
1: mm-hmm. uh,
3: with an economic uh, mm-hmm. press digitation. Mm-hmm. He came up with a, a formula mm-hmm. and. It all it had to do with economy, with with uh, running Mount Vernon, with the prosperity of the nation. He justified his own moral compromise mm-hmm. on that basis. And I just wonder, first of all, you know, is that a correct in your in your understanding of how the founders of this country approached their own slaveholding? enslavement of other human beings and, and how that all, you know, weaves together with, uh, with the structure that we have currently, because it seems to me, you, you just made that, you, you know, you just pointed that out, that it's still very present today, maybe even more so mm-hmm. than it was back then. At least, at least Washington admitted to Lafayette, uh, not Lafayette, but um, Lafayette. Lafayette, thank you. He admitted his moral crisis over his slaveholding sure. uh, to Lafayette. Yeah. Can I just throw all that at you? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. I don't, I don't know how well I'll be able to respond to it all.
2: Um, but when you think about, so let, let's, let's leave the days of slavery. What becomes important with understanding the ways that Washington, Jefferson, and all these guys thought? was that we we begin to see the ways that we think in the ways that we justify our own lives today right and so when you think when you hear arguments against a minimum wage you know that you know we can't do this we can't do that because of x y and z um humans are remarkably moral flex flexible beings remarkably moral flexible beings i mean it, it was funny i was Talk, talking with uh, the editor of, of my next project. You never hear people lament about rich people wasting money. That's not what the problem is. What is the problem? Well, if we pay reparations, those poor black folks are going to waste the money, right? And, like, so, so, and, and, and what ends up happening is we believe that we can't provide welfare. We've got to promote work. And yet we don't believe that you have to pay a living wage to people who are doing the work. And so there always becomes this kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, when you go, when you take a kind of telescope and go look at history, that type of moral flexibility and posturing runs throughout the project. And this is what Adam Smith would say is he is, you know, he says very clearly that when you see George Washington, you don't only see a white man keeping black people in change, you see a white man keeping other white people in poverty. Because Mm -hmm. that's what the slave system does. That's what its aim is. That's what it, you know, so when you go to Mount Vernon, you don't have a white mason. You have an enslaved mason. You don't have a white baker. You have an enslaved baker because what ends up happening within this society. And so so he makes this projection, Adam Smith does, is that for every Mount Vernon, you're going to have a thousand poor white families. That will end up what? To be what happens when you look at when war breaks out in the Civil War, for every wealthy Southern white family, you had about a thousand impoverished. You had more millionaires per capita in Mississippi than you did in New York. You know, and so that is the structure that did the work that it was designed to do. Um, and so maybe two things on that. You know, like one of the things that you'll ha- hear people argue about is whether or not America was a Christian nation. And when you read the original text, you can make persuasive arguments one way or the other. And yet, if you ask what type of Christianity was it, you know, particularly with a figure like George Washington, it was a Christianity that had become complicit in slavery. And so you have in uh, the Declaration of Independence, you know, all men are created equal. And yet nine years after, nine years after the Jefferson pens the Declaration of Independence, he, cra- he writes what's notes on the state of Virginia. And it's really within notes on the state of Virginia that comes out about four years before the, before the America's constitution. What Jefferson will do is he'll provide a basic Bible for racial mythologies within America. And what he said is that there is something depraved about black sexuality Something broken about Black families, that families' bonds don't exist. He'll say Black people don't even have the ability to feel pain. He says these people that don't feel pain, they are naturally lazy and they don't have the initiative self reliance requires. And these people who don't feel pain or naturally lazy, maybe they need the slave whip to really get the work and the economy going the way that we do. And these people who are lazy and who need the slave whip, you know, they have decent memories, but they're, they're intellectually inferior to white people. And these become kind of the racial mythologies that begin shaping the American experiment. And so we believe, you know, we, we have been trained to act as if poor families don't feel the pain that they're experiencing. We don't even have the ability of what it would look like for me to try to raise my family under minimum wage. You know, we don't, we, we've lacked the capacity to even imagine these. But what becomes clear when you, when you read notes on a state of Virginia is that those were not just the racial myths of slavery. Those were the racial myths of segregation, right? Something wrong with black sex. And then segregation adds this element of criminality to it that black folks are more criminal. They're raping white women. That's why we've got to have lynch mobs to keep everything in order. And yet when you look at the work of Ronald Reagan, the same myths that shaped me as I was growing up under the presidency of Ronald Reagan were originally written by Thomas Jefferson, right? The welfare queen. He talks about these black mothers with questionable sexual practices who are getting rich on welfare. Well, why are they having more babies? They're just breeding like the slaves of old. You know, they're trying to get more money from the government, they lack self-reliance. When you look at the myths that arose about from the bell curve, from Charles Murray, someone who's very influential on Ronald Reagan. Well, you see this inequality, it is just a sign of intellectual inferiority. The meritocracy is winning out. And so when you look at the ways that humans justify the way that we behave, The truth of the matter is is that the the slavery of old has very much a strong bearing on the ways that we justify injustice today. Um, And this all becomes part um, of this project to divide the human species along racial lines while still trying to say that we believe in equality, still say we believe in X, Y, or Z. And when we don't fulfill these ideologies, of being able to justify why it is that we don't fulfill the ideologies. So even in the notes of state of Virginia, he's saying that you know slavery is slavery is monstrous. You know it, it just corrupts everybody. But right now it's just a political necessity, and this is why and it's the racial differences. Yeah.
0: Joe, you also mentioned how um, three uh, three states. You talk about the imagined, mm-hmm. the institutionalized, and the ingrained, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Rob raised raised great questions for you, but I, I want to take us back to let's let's go back to the root. How did how did uh, Hob and Locke and and Adam Smith, who wrote who wrote Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. uh, how did they begin to imagine uh, that they were that whites were more rational being than blacks were in Africa? Therefore, the Whigs came out. in you know? Right,
2: right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, it, and it's, it, it is amazing how uh, much those wigs play, played a role in oh uh, the 19th century sciences that yeah. I don't
0: really write about as much in the book. I'm wearing a white beard, but not a white wig.
2: That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, basically, um, when we look at the people who crafted slavery and the ideas that lead to slavery is they are responding to a very real crisis that is shedding blood throughout the world. And that crisis was the wars of religion. Yes. So this is what they're they're responding to. Yes. There's a reason that they don't want government to aim to do a whole lot of good things, right? They believe that this will fill the world with blood, and this is what we learned through the world through the wars of religion. And yet, even though these ideologies are crafted in the hopes of surviving, in the hopes of surviving, there is also a deep ambition uh, rooted in it to where that would make England the preeminent nation within the world. And so it's Mm -hmm. both survival and it is this ambition of what we want to be, how we do this colonial project to become more wealthy. So it's the desire for the colonial project and surviving the world wars of religion that shaped both Hobbes and Locke. And what Hobbes was, I mean, Hobbes was brilliant, but he's brutal. Right. So like, I mean, he believes that we want this tyrant that forces peace onto the world. And what what Hobbes says is he says, man, listen, instead of trying to follow these religious zealots, what we need to do is we need to start thinking more rationally, lean into our rational nature. And what will end up happening is that the myths of slavery are not are not new. Right. You can go back to Plato, Aristotle. And they have all of the ideas that you'll find in racist thought. Today, you can find similar ideas to in the times of the Greeks. And yet what you don't find in the Greeks is the race-based approach. And so Greeks would hold other Europeans in slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Not because they were black, but just Greeks were just knew that they were superior. That superiority wasn't racial. It was just, it wasn't color of skin. What ends up happening with Hobbes and Locke, is they begin racializing these justifications for slavery and inequality that, tra- that trace back thousands of years. And so when, when Hobbes talks about how we got to be more, more rational, he individualizes uh, rationality. Now, that sounds confusing, but what, it, what he means by that is that reason is an independent individual exercise. You know, mm. your brain's a muscle. And you can work that muscle out, and it can lead you to the truth, and it can lead you to the truth by its own power. Well, when a rich white man talks about what reason is, what looks reasonable to him? Other rich white men. And so when he looks in the mirror, he begins seeing what reason can look like, and what he sees is a white person. And so to not be white begins and not to and to not live like white folks live and to think like white folks think gets interpreted as being less than reasonable. And then the process starts working in reverse. That to be less than reasonable becomes less than human.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: it justifies uh, the type of violence that we see taking on the colonial experiment. Mm-hmm. And so when I say imagine if you were to name one book that shapes the colonial experience, it would be Thomas's Hobbes Leviathan. I mean, he talks about sending out folks, taking resources back to England, this, that, or the other. The problem is, is nobody liked Hobbes, right? So he was brilliant, but he wasn't very influential um, because he was so brutal in his approach. What Locke is able to do is he is able to figure out a way To do the same basic calculus, but put a different political veneer on it. Mm. And so rather than talking about how we need a tyrant to make this happen, what he is able to do in a very brilliant way is to do another revolution, but it's a revolution that begins harmonizing the interest of the aristocratic. Mm. Mm. Right. And so by making government about property, he is able to align the interest of the most wealthy among us and place them at with a seat at the table. And so when we think about, you know, how is it that corporations became people? You know, it's yeah. this type of thinking of government being about property. You know, we have uh, the Supreme Court will recognize the humanity of corporations before they recognize the humanity of Dred Scott. You know, um, and so even when you look at, at some of the laws passing today, you see these same type of tendencies. And mm-hmm. so what Locke is able to do is he's able to take these brilliant ideas, but make them persuasive and put them within institutions. Mm-hmm. And then there becomes this question of, okay, we' got this in institutions and there is a certain piece that came about it, right? The Wars of religion cease. As these ideas gain traction about what religion and government and this that or the other is, but new forms of violence of colonialism <laughs> end up arising. So Christians are still killing people; they're just killing for different reasons. Um, and the question becomes: Is how do we live with the type of inequalities that is shaping us? You know, how do we have a more? What What does justice look like? And that's where the works of, of uh, Adam Smith become playing a very central role. And so there is this religion called stoicism and stoicism's original design was basically to make white folks feel comfortable and justified in a society. I, I said white folks, I meant rich folks, comfortable and justified in a society that is marked by radical inequalities. And it's that stoic morality that gets into the economic system and begins shaping the morality of. Americans, whether they're secular or sacred. Uh, And one of the things I will write about is that um, when you have the white church in America, what you really have is a religion that is stoic in nature, but Christian in name, because it has become so hard-hearted to the least of these. And through this evolution Christians ended up losing the prophetic tradition of scripture that always tied politics and religion to the well-being of the most uh,
0: marginalized and vulnerable. Um, so, Joel, can this create a schizo kind of position where through sto- stoicism, it, it also at the same time, uh, the white church is caught experiencing a cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Probably yeah. within themselves because of this stoicism
2: yeah absolutely well when you see the self-deception um at work in jefferson's life right um because he will talk about uh the broken sexuality of black people what is he what is he doing as he talks about that broken sexuality well he had a life where he for years took sexual pleasures off of his slaves you know (laughs) ellie And it it predates salary, right? So salary is in the old age, but even his sexuality leading up before his marriage is shaped by these things. And he talks about how how black uh, families lack family bonds. What does he do to his own family bonds? He keeps his own children in slavery. And yet the issue isn't Jefferson. It is how that type of self-deception becomes paradigmatic for white people throughout our nation. So I can say that I believe in justice, That I want, and and this is what you'll hear is that, you know, I want what you want. I want equality. I want justice. We believe in getting there in different ways, Mm. you know, and the different ways that we get there, one of them requires me to ignore Martin Luther King Jr., right? Mm. So like if you see one politician in any age that was against Martin Luther King Jr., it was Ronald Reagan, completely committed to upending King's revolution, Mm. and yet he learns how to pose as if he's the accomplishment of king's dream Mm. Um, and so the the painful thing becomes how do we learn to tell history in an honest enough way that we learn to see ourselves Mm. and that becomes you know part of the work that is before us you know and so when you had um when you had mammy till right yes what does mississippi want to do What Mississippi wants to do is to put Emmett's body in the ground as soon as possible. Why? Because white America always wants to bury the work that we are doing to black people, to hide it, to not deal with it. And so what Mamie Till is able to outmaneuver Mississippi, get Emmett back, opens up the casket. Mm. And the purpose is not to say that white folks are less than human. The purpose is that until we start finding the courage to look into these empty caskets and to begin seeing the strands of white supremacy that has produced these violence, we will never be free from them.
0: Mm.
2: And so what happens, MLK becomes a child of Emmett Till. It is Emmett Till that drives Rosa Parks. Um, and so, you know, the, the work that we've got before us right now is a work um, that is not about white conservatives and white liberals. You know, the work that is before us right now is to find the courage to not only open up these caskets, but to begin listening to the Black Americans who have been telling us the truth the whole time. The Black
0: Americans we've been ignoring. Oh, and, and you hit something right there, Joel. Um... You know, you know one, there's a little story told. I've used it for years. Uh, the story is told of this uh, 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 a family sitting at a table. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's several in the family. And finally, this little boy stands up, you know, two or three years old. And he says, he screams out, I said, pass me the butter. And everybody goes, whoa, what is the problem with that kid? He's a spanking or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But then somebody went back and showed the family the movie during the meal. And the little boy kept saying pass the butter please mm-hmm. will somebody please pass me the butter Please pass me the butter and nobody was listening and mm-hmm. i think you've hit something right there that at least i identify with it as a black man a black preacher mm-hmm. uh that that we have tried to say things so carefully and so skillfully for, for so many years -hmm. I guess Carter G. Woodson would call it the miseducation of the Negro, but Mm -hmm. we've tried to say things so it's palatable and acceptable, Mm -hmm. and nobody is listening. And even today, I posted something on uh, Facebook that I received a white preacher who stood up in front of the audience and said, uh, uh, White man, shut your mouth (laughs) and Mm -hmm. sit down and listen. And so you argue in your book how the prophetic black church. Mm-hmm. is the best tool to bring education to white America even. And it was Martin mm-hmm. Luther King said that the calling of the black church is to help redeem the soul of America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, you know,
2: that will be, that, you know, that's a consistent theme. You know, when when uh, you talk about racial justice, racial justice is not the work just to heal black people and black families. Racial justice is about the salvation of white folks' souls. It's about mm. all of us. Yes. It's about all of us. You know. And one of the things that becomes clear is that our racial crisis has continued, not because we've lacked answers to our problems, but because we refuse to li- listen to African-American yeah. people. You know? And so like when you look at a Thomas Jefferson, there was a, a black genius named Benjamin Banneker. Yes, that writes to Jefferson and he says, listen, you know, we need you to come out and and tell everybody that black people are intellectually equal. And yet when you read this brilliant man writing to Jefferson, it is clear he's not trying to win an intellectual argument. He's writing like the Apostle Paul writes. He's fighting for his very own humanity, for the humanity of his people. He's trying to save Jefferson's soul from Jefferson's own white supremacy. And what he includes in that letter, in his letter, is an almanac that he himself designed, that it would take a brilliant, it was a brilliant almanac. And so how does Jefferson respond? He says, man, I got your letter. Thank you for giving it to me. And what does he tell others? Well, I think Benjamin Banneker might have had something to do with that. Almanac, but more than likely he had some white allies that probably did most of the work. And so, even with the evidence of Black brilliance, Jefferson rejects the equality. What do we think of King? Well, King is the exceptional Black person. He's not just here every day, you know. And mm-hmm. so, like these type of tendencies that we have that, that have become so much of a part of our DNA. Um, and one of the things that we have to remember is that, you know, part of the work of white supremacy was to make us immune to the cries for racial justice, Mm. to where we always find a million and other ways to protect our moral flexibility. Mm.
0: Well, you know, I think it's so good, uh, Dennis, that we've got Joel coming back next week as well too, because there's so much to unpack. I know Rob is uh, desiring to get in there as well. And Lois, uh, you may have a question or two. But uh, in these last few moments, but I, I think that our audience should know too that Joel has agreed graciously to come back next week because this is so insightful and there's so much to unpack. Uh, even towards the end of your book, we haven't even got even there. We're still <laughs> the foundation from the front end of your book. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. so wonderful, and and even even the very gospel message, Joel has to be reshaped. I mean, the way we even tell the story, I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the Bissarat in Ethiopian. Mm. We, we're telling the story, but we're not telling it the way it actually is. It's another gospel, it sounds like to me, and mm. the philosophers have poisoned the, the white church of America from its inception from the purity mm. of the gospel, yeah. and we've got to deal with that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, white supremacy helped us make a make ourselves immune to the gospel. Uh, there's no there's no doubt about that. And you know, there was um, one person who said the problem with white Christians is this. they think they know scripture. You know, <laughs> uh, and yet what you know what we've seen is the only um, theologian that I know of from European descent that really took the time. And, and became really famous uh, that really took the time to learn from black folks was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes.
0: Uh, he, he He's the only one. There we go. There we go, Rob. There he is. You know, we got Dietrich and we got Martin Luther King. We got a brilliant white guy, <laughs> we got a brilliant black guy and yeah. them brothers are bad together. <laughs> both, uh,
3: incidentally, both murdered at age 39. Uh, yeah. I always found that so That's interesting. Right. If you Google our friend Reggie Williams on that very correlation. He's got a great little short video piece on YouTube, Mm -hmm. Reggie Williams on Bonhoeffer and MLK, really Mm -hmm. worth watching.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, I'm just so grateful. Lois, am I blocking you out or is there something you wanna jump in there with? Or oh, pick? I
4: have so many questions. Uh, the, this book is, is just amazing. Um, yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Joel, and, and you might just need to carry this on into next week. Um, you quoted Kendi as arguing that uh, for too long, we have attempted to educate white folks out of racism as if white folks' ignorance was the problem. And for too long, Black folks attempted to assimilate to white culture as if white culture was the solution. So this idea of, of uh, uh, white folks' ignorance being the problem, um, mm-hmm. you know, you you also call for uh, depth perception, a moral depth perception in your book. Mm-hmm. And so uh, how I'd like you to either today or next week just address this issue of, um, you know, it seems like Ignorance of white folks is the problem. You've mentioned several examples of that just mm-hmm. today, and yet um, it—that's not the whole problem. So mm-hmm. I guess what I—I'd uh, like to talk, uh, mm-hmm. like to ask you, you know, how do we get that depth perception if ignorance mm-hmm. isn't the problem? How do we arrive at? Moral depth perception, and mm-hmm. um, you know, you talk about the work that's before us. How mm-hmm. does um, education play a part? How, uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, can, um, I just finished reading uh, Jamar Tisby's book, and he talks about the arc, uh, the awareness, and the relationships and the commitment. You know, we need mm-hmm. this awareness, we need this education, but how do we how do we deal with ignorance? How do we deal with um, you know, we can't mm-hmm. solely say that ignorance is the problem, but we can't, we have to get beyond ignorance as well. Um, mm-hmm. Even your moving into the fifth ward was an educational experience for you that was not only, uh, you know, cognitive, but but visceral from on a day-to-day level. So mm-hmm. that's my question. I'm going to kind of throw it out there and, and you mm-hmm. can uh, address that how you like. I know we only have four minutes, so.
2: Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't have any silver bullets, uh, um, uh, <laughs>
4: but, you know, in, in
2: the, you know, kind of what I've learned is part of learning, uh, part of life is living without silver bullets. And it's about staying in the saddle and trying to become the people that, that we desire to be. And so when Tisby talks about relationships, you know, I think that Kendi would say something very similar. You know, Mm -hmm. but what also becomes clear is what facilitates those relationships has to be changing of laws. You know, we have made a society in which healthy relationships have become a near impossibility. Um, we've made it impossible to have the type of relationships that we have to have to have a just society, and that was the whole purpose of segregation, right? Was, Was to defeat the possibility of these transformative type of relationships Mm -hmm. you know and so i think part of the problem is not just at the head it's in the heart and part of what forms head and heart are laws um and so the work uh that is before us is 360 degrees in nature um and yet the steps that we take are one step at a time with things Mm -hmm. and and what i mean by that is that when we think about the changes that have to happen it can be overwhelming Mm -hmm. um and yet we live one day at a time. Um, and what becomes clear is that the very goals that we have will drive our life together. And so, you know, we became a country that said that, you know, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to defeat gravity. We're going to defeat spaceship. Uh, we're going to make spaceships, which is crazy. I mean, even the term spaceship seems out of science fiction. But we're able to do all of those things because we committed to it and we learned from our failures and we kept on going. Uh, In our war against white supremacy um, and in our war for equality, I think that the same principles apply, that you have to know what you're aiming for, that we want a society of equality, we want a society of intimacy, we want a society where no longer does white supremacy have the definitive definitive role. And by having the right aim, having the right aim is how we find the processes that we don't even know yet. Um, and but that's how we discover the processes that we're going to need to implement.
0: Yes. And again, I'll say that um, we, we're coming back next week, so I think everybody be loaded with questions for you, Joel. Having heard you today, everybody will have a lot of questions for you <laughs> next week. <laughs> well, you know, I'm honored. I like I'm the way you time. talked about day by day because, you know, the prophetic black church has to be listened to, and the mantra that we grew up with is that god will make a way out of out no, no way <laughs> <laughs> we serve a god who is who sits high but he looks low no, we'll on do absolutely yeah so dennis how we're just about out of time are we we
1: are right. uh tom you want to say something before we um, tom is there tom's right there
2: <laughs> i don't see him
0: tom is you're, there. You're, your mic is
1: muted,
2: Tom.
0: I just I
1: look forward to next week. Joel, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Yeah. It's an honor to be with you. Yeah. It's an honor to be with you.
1: I think, I think, Joel, that when we come in next week too, uh, you know, I guess, you know, some of our audience is asking too in the notes. We we we've come to these truths over and over again. And I, and I like a point you just made that you have no silver bullets. But I guess next week we need to talk about too, where we go from here. Mm-hmm. We we we've hashed the issue yeah. over and over again, right. and it's right. been a problem. I just watched the uh, HBO special this weekend on Judas and the Black Messiah, which is the story of the Black Panthers. That yeah. was real interesting.
0: Yeah. I watched but it we, last week. We get well. to
1: these truths. Mm-hmm. So now, where do we go from here? And I, and I well, let's talk about reparations
2: thing. next
0: week yeah yeah that will be a that was that was dr king's book too where do we go from here where yes, do we go she? from here and joe i think i think there's enough minds at this you know this whole street talk is about the fact that we together black white jew gentile male female uh, we are. We believe in this ministry of reconciliation, but we realize that we all have to come together to get to the promised land. Mm-hmm. And so we we are coming together on this show to show the world that we wanna make this one step at a time and we wanna find the way together for the glory of God. And so I thank you, Joel. And I know you'll, you'll, certain things may have resonated to you that you wanna elaborate on next week and questions will rise. And I just think it was a precious moment in history, and that you gave great insights to not just talking about the problem, but you, but but you deal in your book with the roots of the problem. The roots, if we talk about problems, but the, you got to lay X to the root, and I think that's what your book is addressing so clearly. Mm-hmm. And so theologically and philosophically and politically and et cetera, et cetera. But anyhow, thank you so much. Well, and my honor, my honor to be you next me. time. And so as my tradition has been, Dennis, I'll close our show yes. with uh, offering the benediction, which is the Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon each one and give you shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of Yeshua, Hamashiach, Amen and Amen. See you next time. Amen. God bless. Oh, I think that was just wonderful, Joel. Yeah. Wonderful.